I um, am so excited to be back here again, part two of, of the series, Anticipation. We began our series on Monday evening, reflecting on the Holy Spirit and creation. And we looked at the very fact that this verse that we oftentimes read over very casually in Genesis 1 and verse 2, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. But looking deeper into this as what a Hebrew man or woman or child would have understood what was actually taking place. That the Holy Spirit wasn't just there just for moral support for creation. He wasn't just there to give his endorsement. He wasn't just there to say, you know, I think this is a great idea. He wasn't just there surveying the land. But he was hovering over the face, the surface of the waters, because he was shaking in eager anticipation. He was excited to participate in creation. And so today we continue in the same theme because I believe the Holy Spirit is a spirit of anticipation. He is oftentimes in the Bible waiting, shaking in anticipation of some event so that he can partner with the word of God to bring about this powerful, momentous result. We looked at the very first one, which is the creation of the world. The Holy Spirit was there every single day. I wish I had time to develop that even further in Genesis. But we must move forward. And today we're going to look at a passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at Anticipation, part 2. The Spirit and the Cross. Many people, unfortunately, do not fully understand the purpose of Jesus' earthly ministry. Many people believe that Jesus came down from heaven, was born of a baby, and he was conceived in Mary's womb. And how was he conceived into Mary's womb? Does anybody remember how he was conceived? By the Holy Spirit. When Mary asked the question, how can this be? The angel only gave her one answer. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And he will take divinity and give it atomic feeling. Protons, neutrons, and electrons. Nerves. This is why the song says, Mary, did you know that when you kissed that baby's face, you were kissing the face of God? Because the Holy Spirit had taken divinity and given it flesh. He made Jesus real, touchable, huggable, to listen to him. You could sleep next to God. It is unfathomable to think about the immensity of the con- the 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 the, the, uh, the incarnation. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. I was about to say something that would have gave away my message. And so we build off of the fact that Jesus came down, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and we go to the Gospel of John in the first chapter, and in verse 29. When you're there, please just say Amen. I don't want to run ahead of anyone because, as I said, a lot of this is more teaching than preaching. So please, John chapter 1 and verse 29. The Bible says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now we're going to pause here for a moment because we must lay a foundation before we go to the rest of the passage, and it will make more sense. 
John looks at Jesus coming toward him, and this is not the only time he says it. He repeats it again the next day. Behold the Lamb of God. Now, it must be clear that John called Jesus a lamb before Revelation chapter 5. Before all creation, animate and inanimate, was saying worthy is the lamb, John said Jesus was a lamb. Before Revelation 17 said that the, these ten kings will fight against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome him. And those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. That was before Revelation 17 verse 14. That John looked at Jesus, the first person, the first individual to recognize in this man, the word having become flesh isn't just the word, it is a lamb. But we must understand as we looked at Genesis chapter 1, what did a Jewish man understand by these words? He was not Adventist, he was not Christian, he was a Jew who would be listening to the words of John. And in listening to the words of John, he was curious to understand certain assumptions that he wasn't telling that Jesus was dumb. He wasn't saying that Jesus was a wandering soul because lambs like to wander. He wasn't saying that Jesus was fragile by calling him a lamb or that Jesus was weak. In a Jewish mind, they understood something about lambs that perhaps many of us today are a little bit far removed from. You see, from the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 22, in verses 7 and 8, there was a father and a son climbing a mountain. And as they were climbing that mountain, the son asked the father a question. He said, Father, I see the wood. I see this is for the fire, and we have the stones for the altar, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And the father looked at his son, and he said, Son... God will provide himself a lamb. But we're not sure if it's that's the right lamb. Because you go a little bit forward to Exodus chapter 12, and I want you to turn there with me, because I want you to see it in the Bible for yourself. In Exodus chapter 12, this is the night that the Jewish nation was soon to be liberated, broken free from Egyptian slavery, God gave Moses specific instructions to give to the people. And in verse 3 of the 12th chapter of Exodus, the Bible says, Speak to how many of the congregation? All the congregation of Israel. There is no one to be excluded from these instructions. On the 10th day of this month, every man, every man shall take for himself a what? A lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for what? His household. Everyone in this man's house, he was going to get a lamb, and his family safety depended upon the man obeying this command. You see, there's something from the very beginning of liberation of every family, of every home in the Moor community that depends upon the father going to get a lamb. That if we really want our wives and our children to be free, we have the obligation. He didn't say every wife. He didn't say every son. He didn't say every firstborn. He says every man who has a household, he needs to go get a lamb. 
And this lamb is not just for him. His spiritual effort, his spiritual study, his spiritual prayers, his spiritual seeking is not for himself. Alone. It is for his household. And as he goes to get this lamb, the Bible goes on in verse 4 and says, And if the household is too small for the lamb. I don't even have time to preach on that. If the household is too small for the lamb. Because the lamb covers a huge amount. It says, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. The next verse says, your lamb shall be what? Without blemish. I want you to remember this because we're going to look at this several times. Your lamb shall be without blemish. That means it can't have any spots. It can't have any bruises. It can't have any diseases. It has to be the perfect lamb. No issues, internal or external. Perfect lamb, without blemish. The Bible goes on in verse 5, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. This is interesting. And then he says, now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall what? Shall what? Kill it at what time? Twilight, the darkest time. So we can say, or we can actually say this in the Hebrew, it could also be when the sun is setting. What we may call dusk or dawn, depending on how you want to view that. They take this lamb, and they have to kill this lamb. But notice, it is a male who can reproduce many times with many female lambs, sheep. Number two, he's without blemish, so you want him to reproduce. And number three, he's young. He doesn't even have time to really produce anything for you. One-year-old, kill him. Without blemish, who is male. Kill the lamb at this time. And the verse, in verse 7 goes on to say, And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. And we don't have to get off until eating the flesh and bitter herbs. That's a whole other message. But here's the point. When John saw Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Could it be that he was referring to the lamb that would provide liberty? The lamb was a symbol to the Jewish nation of how they were free. This is how you got out. Because in that last plague, the angel of death did not care how long you were a church member. He didn't care if you were 10th generation from Abraham. He didn't care how often you studied the Torah. He didn't care how many prayers you prayed. He didn't care if you were 100% healthy following the health message. He didn't care. He only wanted to know one thing. When I come to your house, I better see blood on the door. And if there is no blood, guess what happens? There is death. And the question is, why did the angel pass over the door with blood? Why didn't he kill anything in that house? Because the blood was a reminder and a symbol to the angel, something has already died. Something has already died here. You don't need to take any life. 
But if there is no blood on the doorpost, then you and I must believe that at that time, the angel said to himself, oh, nothing has died here. In other words, something's going to die in every household in Egypt. You choose what is going to be. And if this is a symbol of the prophetic time of judgment soon to come, that there will be an angel that will pass over not the doorposts of Egypt, not the doorposts of Moor, but the doorposts of people's hearts, that he will come by every single soul. And his only concern is, is there blood here? So when we talk about the very fact that there is power in the blood, when we talk about, yes, thank you for the blood, or the blood shall never lose its power because it reaches to the highest mountain, when we sing these songs about the blood, we are remembering like the Jewish nation. When you say lamb, you are talking about the only way out of Egypt with life. And therefore, the only way out of this world, which, by the way, Egypt means darkness. That's what the name means. So when Peter says he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you know how he got us out of darkness? By a lamb. But was this the lamb that John was talking about? So we have two times in Genesis, the lamb was killed. In Exodus, the lamb is killed. We're not going to go over Exodus 29. This is the morning and evening sacrifice. Two lambs every day. One in the morning, one in the evening. Constantly burning. That's Exodus 29, verse 39 for your notes. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 3. Continue to explore this concept of the lamb. And then we will apply it. Leviticus chapter 3, this is the peace offering. There are very many offerings that the Jews were making. And this one is the peace offering, the third one that is mentioned in the Levitical laws. The first one is the, the burnt offering and then the grain offering, the meal offering, and then the peace offering. And the Bible says, when his offering in verse 1, I'm sorry, I'm in Leviticus chapter 3. In verse 1, are you there? Amen. All right. The Bible says when his offering is a sacrifice of a peace offering, if he offers it of the herd. So let's pause here. The man is coming to offer a peace offering to God. The purpose of this offering is to restore peace between two parties. Now, obviously, if we're offering it to the Lord, the issue is we are trying to make this offering in order to make peace between myself and who else? And God. The offering already suggested there was possibility, some tension, there was a possibility that there was tension between the soul and God. And so I ask you this morning, is there tension between you and God? Is there tension between you and Jesus? Is there tension between me or you and the Lord? And the Bible says, if we are interested in making peace with God, when you look at verse 7 of Leviticus chapter 3, it says, <laughs> oh, actually, I'm going to start in verse 6. If his offering as a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord is of the flock, whether male or female, he shall offer it how? Without blemish. So the lamb in Exodus, without blemish. 
The lamb in Leviticus, peace offering without blemish. Verse 7, if he offers a lamb as his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering. Note this down. He puts his hands on the head of the offering, the Bible says. And kill it before the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron's son shall sprinkle its blood all around the altar. Then he shall offer the sacrifice of the peace offering as an offering made by fire to the Lord. It's fat and the whole fat tail which he shall remove close to the backbone and the fat that covers the entrails and all that is on the entrails. He is supposed to offer this on the altar. You see, if Christ, when John says, behold the Lamb of God, if he's talking about the Lamb that is a peace offering, then John is simply intimating that between the world, because he says, who taketh away the sins of the world, there is tension between the world and God. And in this tension between the world and God, there is a lamb. Something has been found that is male, that is without blemish, and that can be offered in order to make peace with God. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Take that one amen. I don't know about you, but I don't even like to have tension with my own wife. People don't like to have tension with their own kids. The kid starts crying and is angry. Mother's like, oh, she's going to hate me forever. I hate to do this. Because we don't like to have tension between us and other people. What about us and God? So we ask ourselves that very question. Do you have peace with God? Do I have peace with God? Or is there tension? Is there something between your soul, my soul, and the Savior? So that his blessed face cannot be seen. You know, I had a, a roommate one time, years ago. And sometimes he used to come to me and he would say, Sebastian, I can't see Jesus today. I prayed, I studied my Bible, I just, I feel like there's something blocking my soul from the Savior. And I don't know if you've had days like that, but maybe if we have had days like this, maybe we need to take John's advice and behold the Lamb of God. The Lamb that makes peace between us and God. And you can say, when are we supposed to offer this? Before the Lord. Rather than coming before God with our long prayers, and I'm not against long prayer, rather than coming before God with our perfect obedience to the light that we have received, what if we showed up with the Lamb? What if we showed up and said, Lord, this night as I'm praying to you, when we get home on this Wednesday evening, before we sleep, and we say, my soul just fell off today. I just felt like I wasn't quite connected to God. Didn't get the prayer time I needed. Didn't get the Bible study time I needed. But we could go to God and say, Lord, I feel like there's some tension, but I want to take before you Jesus. This is what I present to you, Lord. 
open it to Matthew chapter 27 and say, Lord, this is what I'm offering. He who died. And God says, I'll accept it. And we will have peace. That gives a man, a woman, the ability to sleep at night. Do you know that the world is plagued with people who cannot sleep? That's why the internet is a curse. Because you can't sleep, what you gonna do? Then before you had to go to the movies, now Netflix, you can get it online. 24-7, last year alone, the owner of Netflix said, America watched 60-something billion hours of movies in one year. People sit down and watch the whole series of certain television shows that come on every day. We're going to watch the whole season. Oh, man, stayed up till 5 o'clock. I just couldn't sleep. Heart is ridden with guilt and anxiety because there's no peace with God. And people want to behold Kevin Costner. People want to behold Denzel Washington, whoever is out there. But they don't want to behold the Lamb of God. And they wonder why there's no peace. People think the movies give you two hours of peace, 22 hours of pain and suffering. And as a result, I don't know how you and I are seeking to find peace in our lives. But please believe there is no other offering according to the word of God. There is no other way to find peace. In fact, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. But I don't want to get off my sermon too far. So I want to keep going. Is Jesus the lamb that is according to Isaiah 53? That it says that as a lamb is brought to the slaughter in verse 7 of Isaiah 53. So when the Bible says that this lamb is brought to the slaughter. And as a sheep is dumb before her shearers, he will make no sound. Maybe this is the lamb that John was thinking, behold the lamb of God. But the problem is even that lamb dies. Because it says as a lamb brought to the what? Slaughter. He's being brought to be killed. You can't find a story about a lamb that is not killed in the Bible. So as soon as John says in John chapter 1 and verse 29, behold the lamb of God. As soon as he says lamb, everyone should be thinking in their mind, he's going to die. Whether he's the lamb of Abraham, whether he's the lamb of the Exodus, whether he is the lamb of the burnt offering, whether he is the lamb of the peace offering, whether he is the lamb of Isaiah, the lamb is going to die. In fact, the very fact that he is perfect, that he is without blemish, if he lives a sinless life, this is the other intimation of calling him the lamb. But here's a problem. Go back to John 1. Go back to John 1, and I want you to notice the tension in the Jewish mind that will come with this verse, because it's not just saying, behold, the lamb. That's not what it says. In John 1, verse 29, are you back there? Yes? The Bible says in John chapter 1, and verse 29, behold, the lamb of God. Pause.
in Exodus, every man had to take his own lamb. Is that not right? Yes or no? In Leviticus, if you wanted to bring a peace offering before the Lord, you had to bring your own lamb. If you had to bring a sin offering, if you had to bring a trespass offering, you had to bring your own lamb. Here's a problem because John didn't say, behold the lamb of the world that takes away the sin of the world. He says, behold the lamb of God. Whose lamb is that? You see, we must understand something. If you're going to bring a peace offering, you got to bring your very best lamb. Without blemish. Perfect. So this means that Jesus, when John is looking at him, he's saying this is God's lamb. And out of all the universe, out of all the heaven of heavens, unfallen worlds, he chose one. He said, this is heaven's best. And when the lamb that takes away sin, someone had to break the law, someone had to do wrong, someone had to transgress the commandments of God. And in this transgression, the problem is, why does God have to provide the lamb? Because in the Old Testament, you provide the lamb. And your lamb that you bring, because you sinned, you lose. It was trying to teach the sinner in the Old Testament. When we sin, we lose. When we sin, it costs us. When we sin, we don't just lose. It doesn't just cost us. It costs us our very best. Please believe. We cast our eyes upon pornography. We lose our very best vision. We sin with appetites. It costs us our very best energies and strength. We read foolishness. It costs us our very best mind. And we are only reminded even further that even if we recover from the sin, the mold of evil still remains upon the mind. In this sense, when Jesus is walking towards John, John looks at Christ and he says, behold the lamb. What was he saying? The Jews heard not the lamb of God. They heard this is heaven's best. They heard that because the world sinned, God is losing. This is why you have the very fact that why do angels come down and are ministering spirits to those who will inherit salvation? Because Jesus came down. And all angels want to do is be where Jesus is. So they say, if the Lord is coming down to save men, we're interested in saving men. In an angel's mind, heaven is not a place where the streets are gold. Heaven is not a place where there's no sin or sorrow. Heaven is where Christ is. And wherever Christ is, is where the will of God is being done. We need to be clear on that. Because in the Lord's prayer, he says, as it is in heaven, let it be on earth. As it is. Wait, wait, no. Your will be done. As it is in heaven. <laughs> on the earth. So this is why I love that song. 
that says heaven came down and glory filled my soul. When at the cross, my Savior made me whole. When my sins were washed away and my night was turned to day, heaven came down in one gift. And can you imagine that people think it hard to give Jesus everything? In Steps to Christ, she writes, people think it hard to give all to Christ. I'm ashamed to think it. I'm ashamed to write it. Heaven's best. And God provided the lamb because the world had no lamb. Who were we going to present to God to make peace with him? Who would take away the sins of the world? Who would be the perfect specimen that we could present on the altar of heaven at the very gates of eternity? And say, Lord, this man, this woman, because the sheep could be male or female. Who would we present without blemish? The world has not produced one. And this is the sad thing, is that I can look at Martin Luther King Jr., and think to myself, this man who has been used to bring about a great change is still not a worthy offering. I could look at William Wilberforce, who shut down slavery in England and influenced a nation to go against its own economic benefit, and he's not a worthy offering. I could look at Noah, I could look at Enoch, I could look at Elijah and put them on the altar, even still. Not a worthy offering to make peace with God. God would look at us like Cain and turn away from our offering. If you do not well, will you not be accepted? Bring me the right offering. The lamb. And this is why in heaven it says worthy. Worthy. Worthy is the lamb. Why is he worthy? Because he alone. He alone. And you know what's crazy is that his sacrifice, <laughs> because he is the burnt offering in Exodus 29, the sacrifice of Jesus is so powerful that not only does it cover our sins, past or future or present, but if sin were to arise again, he doesn't have to die again. Because the burnt offering is there to say, in case anything comes up, it's already burning. It's been done. Killed, sacrificed on the altar. And if Jesus is indeed the Lamb of God, what kind of lamb do you think God brought to the altar? If they couldn't bring anything but their very best, what is God bringing? His very best, and you're telling me a God who is omniscient, omnipotent, all-present, all-loving, what kind of offering does he bring? And people talking about they're not interested in Jesus. People talking about, oh, I'm not sure about Christ. I'm not sure I want to give my life to Christ. I'm not ready to cross the line into full commitment to, to Jesus. I'm not ready to submit myself to his word. 
the Lamb of God. Heaven's best. It is unbelievable for us to think to ourselves that God, who had no sin, would offer his very best. And you know what his very best was? His son. Not Gabriel. And Gabriel's a powerful angel. Not Gabriel. He's like, I'm going to go even higher to one equal with myself. That's the best I got. And not only is it the best, because we sin, brothers and sisters, we must understand we're so consumed with our own guilt, we forget that it costs God when we sin. He loses. Something must die. And as a result, when John comes and looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. He wanted them to think about it. As we are doing right at this moment. But that wasn't the reason. That wasn't the ultimate purpose of his earthly ministry. We keep reading in John, and John doesn't stop there. He says in verse 30 of John chapter 1, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. Verse 31, I did not know him. What do those words mean? When John says, I did not know him, first of all, did is in the past tense. So that means he knows him now. But he says, this man who comes after me, that is preferred before me, this man who is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, I didn't know who he was. Could you imagine that you and I have tension with God and there is a man walking around on the earth who is the Lamb? Who is the perfect offering for us to bring? And the problem is, we don't know who he is. All that guilt, all that shame, all that broken past, there is a way for us to make peace with God. And there is no way to identify him. You know why? Because the Bible told us there is nothing outside of him, no comeliness that we should desire him. Even though he would be the desire of ages. Every age has sought peace. Every age has sought freedom from guilt. Every age has sought freedom from shame. This is why Jesus is the desire of ages. There is no soul that has not a dark spot in the basement of life wishing it would go away. And the Bible says, through John, I didn't know who he was. And that was his cousin. <laughs> I didn't know who he was. So what happened, John? Let's keep reading together. It says, but that he should be revealed to Israel, therefore I came baptizing with water. Some people, maybe who were raised in the church, I don't know, but I wasn't raised in the church. And so when I came into the church, when I was first introduced to John the Baptist, I was a little bit confused, I have to be honest. 
People just take it for granted that the man was just on the banks of the river baptizing people. It's not in the Old Testament. I can't find it. If it's there, please let me know. I know there's the laver in the sanctuary, the washing, all these things. But I don't find a situation outside of the story of Naaman where a man is being immersed in water, which Naaman did it himself. By another man, come to the Jordan, repent, and be baptized. The word baptism means to be immersed in water. This is very important. Baptism means to be immersed. Amen. Amen. And the Bible says that John came baptizing with what? Why does he have to mention water? What else would you baptize with? You, you have the very fact that as soon as someone says, I'm going to baptize with water, what else would you baptize with? So John is already thinking in his mind, there is another baptism that is beyond what I'm doing. But I'm going to tell you, this is why I came baptizing with water, something you could physically see. And I came baptizing with water so that the one who was the Lamb of God could be revealed to Israel. Every single person John was baptizing, he was wondering, is this the one? But here's the, here's the thing. It keeps going. Verse 32. And John bore witness saying, I saw the what? Spirit descending from where? Heaven. Like a dove. And he remained upon him. He goes on to explain this again because he's like, maybe you didn't get what I was saying. Verse 33. I did not know him. <laughs> I want this to be clear, John says. I didn't know who was the Messiah. I didn't know who was the Lamb of God. I knew there was one. I knew prophetically he should arrive at this time. I'm expecting him. I'm preaching a, a message of repentance to make straight the way of the Lord because I know he's coming. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. But I don't know who the king is. How in the world could a king be coming and you don't recognize that he's coming? Who that is? This starts getting very confusing for a Jewish mind. The king is coming, but we don't know who he is. So the Bible goes on and John says, but he who sent me. In verse 33, to baptize with water said to me. Pause. When John was baptizing with water, he didn't go there on his own. It wasn't his idea. You know whose idea that was? God's idea. So here's the prophet preaching in the wilderness. And God said, John, I want you to go to the Jordan River. I want you to start baptizing people. And let's see what else he said to John. And then he said, upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him. This is he who baptizes with what? The Holy Spirit. Pause. So John is baptizing with water. Why is he baptizing? To see who is what? The Lamb of God. And what does the Lamb of God ultimately do? Takes away sins and ties with the Holy Spirit. The same person that takes away sins is the same person that baptizes with the Holy Spirit. 
Question, which one comes first? If the same person is doing two different actions, they cannot be done at the same time. Amen? He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But he's also the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Which one comes first? Is the question. And what does the word baptize mean? To immerse in the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about some Samson stuff. The Spirit came upon him. He kills a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. He's gone. Now the brother's thirsty. He's about to die. We're not talking about that kind of Spirit coming down. We're not talking about Bezalel just to make the sanctuary. Then the Spirit leaves him. The Bible says, I saw the Spirit come down, but this time it stayed upon him. And that person, who is the lamb, is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, A, will take away sins, B, baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now our question is, in what order? Now, are you ready for this? Because this is where things began to come together for me. And understand, the goal of Jesus' earthly ministry was not just to die for our sins. This was not the ultimate end. And we will go there. Let's go to John 7. John chapter 7. And this will tell us where and what the Holy Spirit was doing at the cross. The Bible says in John chapter 7, are you there? It's only a few chapters over to the right. The Bible says in John chapter 7 and verse 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, interpretation. But this he spoke concerning the what? Spirit. Spirit. Keep reading. Whom those believing in him would what? Okay, pause. Can you receive the spirit without believing in Jesus? Yes or no? No. So the only people who will receive the Spirit are those who believe in who? Jesus. Keep going. It says, for the Holy Spirit was not yet what? Given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So now we have a, a sense of, okay, if Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, the Bible says the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So in other words, the Holy Spirit cannot be given, he cannot come down, he cannot be baptizing people until Jesus is glorified. But what does that mean? How do we know when Jesus was glorified? Let's go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. I told you this is going to be a Bible study. Verse to verse. John chapter 12. 
Beginning in verse 20. Are you there? Yes? All right. The Bible says, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, I'm confused. We want to see Jesus. Hold on. Let me go talk to Andrew. Why don't you just go to Jesus? Amen? So Philip is a little confused, and the reason why he's, he's doing this is because Jesus is inside the temple. This is the Passover time. And so because Christ is inside the temple, these are Greeks, Gentiles. So they come to Philip, and they're like, hey, we want to see Jesus. Philip's like, but he's in the temple. You can't come in the temple because you're a Gentile. You're going to defile the whole thing. And if you defile the whole thing, guess what? Passover is done. And you're talking about thousands of people from different countries around the Roman Empire there to worship. So as a result, Philip is a little confused. He's like, what are we supposed to So he goes to Andrew. Hey, Andrew, maybe you know what to do. So Andrew, he comes and tells Andrew, and the Bible says in verse 22, and in turn, Andrew and Philip together told Jesus. There's some Greeks outside. They said, we want to see Jesus. Lord, can you reconcile this issue right now? And Jesus' response was, in verse 23, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled. His soul is what? Troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Three times the hour is mentioned. Now, the first time he says, it's the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Has anyone ever been troubled when they were about to be glorified? You ever been troubled? They say, you know what? We're going to give Pastor Mike the Lifetime Pastoral Achievement Award. <laughs> He's about 85. <laughs> Bring him up there and say, Lifetime Pastoral Achievement Award. And do you see Pastor Mike in the back troubled? And they say, uh, Pastor Mike, are you ready? You're going to have the opening praise like, my soul is troubled. You know, people don't have a problem with glory until it's given to someone else. Amen to that. It's the truth. We don't have any problem with glorification until it's given to somebody else. Oh, let me tell this sister has been a blessing. People are like, I've been here for 10 years. They never did that for me. We sound just like the prodigal son, the one that was at home. This brother came in. He'd been spending his money with harlots and all. You cut the fatted calf in church for him. It's the truth. So when Jesus says he's going to be glorified, the Bible says his soul is troubled. He's expecting this not going to be a comfortable experience. In fact, he goes on to say, 
but for this purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus knew something was about to happen. And as he said this, the Bible says a voice came from heaven in verse 28. And in verse 30, Jesus responded and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I be what? Lifted up from the earth, will draw how many people? All peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what what? Death, he would die. Jesus associated his death being lifted up from the earth. Because the next verse tells you what, was the, what kind of death were they expecting. Verse 34. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit, remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They assumed that being lifted up from the earth was referring to crucifixion was referring to Jesus not remaining forever, but dying. And so the cross of Christ was associated with the glorification of Jesus. And this is the time when Jesus was glorified. The word glorified doesn't just mean to attribute praise, to speak well of, but this is the time that glorified means to reveal. Now you will see who Jesus is. This is the Lamb of God. Because when a lamb is a lamb and he's going to take away sin, he's going to die. And for this hour, so now you and I understand what was happening in Gethsemane. The hands of the world were being put down on the head of the lamb. Days before the death. He was being set aside. And the world was resting his hands upon the head of Jesus. Do you think a lamb can hold the weight of a grown man? It would begin to crush him. But this is exactly what he was supposed to do. Put his hands on this lamb, one-year-old male lamb. All his weight on its head. Confess his sin. And when he's done putting his hand on the weight of the lamb's head, what does he have to do? Kill the lamb. But guess what? We said this is the lamb of God. Whose hands were on Jesus' head? It was the father. He was leaning on Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He was transferring his wrath. He was removing, even though you're my best, lamb, just like the Israelite. You're my best. I would love to preserve you. I would love to keep you. But something must die. And the sinner was saying to his lamb, it ain't going to be me. And there the lamb, experiencing all this weight, the father was leaning on Jesus. That's why he wasn't talking to the world. Oh, world, please, if it be possible, take this cup away from me. No. Father, if it be possible... Sweating great drops of blood. He knew what was coming. And when he got to the cross, the Bible says in Isaiah 53, it pleased God to bruise him. 
No one takes away my life, Christ said. I lay it down. And so the one who's the lamb and the one who has the sin are the ones that kill the lamb. Except in Jesus' situation, the lamb is God's. The sin is mine. And before we can accept the cross as something that is done for us, we must first see the cross as something done by us. I need to say that again. Before we accept the cross of Jesus as something that is done for us, we must first see the cross as something done by us. We who have the sin, we nail the spikes. We are the soldiers. We are the jealous Jews. We are the cowardly Pilate. We are Judas. All these people that traded Jesus went from Judas to the Jews to Pilate to the soldiers to the cross. In that order. From the inner to the people who are farthest away. The crucifixion started inside the church. His own disciples. As a result, when Christ says, I'm going to be glorified. As you look at this crucifixion, the question is now raised. This is the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit? And the Holy Spirit is not yet given until Jesus is what? And this is the hour of his glorification. Is the hour that he's going to die. On a cross. So the question now is. If he is the one that's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Which one comes first? The Lamb of God taking away sins of the world. Or the Lamb who is baptizing with the Holy Spirit. Which one comes first? How does the lamb take away sins? Has to die. So in other words, brothers and sisters, if you jump to Acts chapter 1, because I'm going to end here and make the point and wrap it up. Acts chapter 1. I want you to notice what Jesus tells the disciples, just in case we missed it in John chapter 1. <laughs> the Bible says in Acts chapter 1, in, being, in verse 4, it's our last verse for tonight. It says, in being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of who? The Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with what? Water. But you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Is this before or after the crucifixion? After. So here Jesus is talking to the disciples whom John years before said, this is the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. 
And this is he whom the one who sent me to baptize said, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. So on the day of Pentecost, explain to me in five words what took place. Too many words. Baptized with the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. But guess what had to happen first? You had to be what? Yes. The Holy Spirit does not come upon anyone. Jesus does not baptize anyone with the Holy Spirit who still has sinned. So when we want to talk about preparation for the reception of the Holy Spirit, we got to talk about sin. Because he can't baptize us with the Holy Spirit while we have sin. It doesn't happen. It can't happen. So the question is, where was the Holy Spirit at the cross? The Holy Spirit was suffering. He was in agony, but he was also shaking in anticipation. Because he knew that as Jesus was dying, counting down the hours, if he doesn't go through with this, I can't come. I can't come down. Reserved all this power, all this gift, reserved in heaven. Waiting on the word again. Waiting on the word again. And there he was in that upper room, 10 days, <laughs> waiting, shaking in eager anticipation. Because the Holy Spirit knew, just like in creation, he knew exactly what was going to happen when he came down. And guess what? It didn't take long. Amen. That same day, they went out. 3,000. Same day. The Holy Spirit knew 3,000 that day. And then the following 5,000. And then adding to the church daily. This is what the Holy Spirit saw in his mind. And not only the Holy Spirit, Jesus. Because before he left, this is all he wanted to talk about. Because when Jesus came down. Before he goes back to heaven and is finished with the earth, he wants to make sure he has secured one thing for his people. I want to make sure I have secured the Holy Spirit. This is the ultimate goal of his earthly ministry. So when we talk about anticipation, I'm wondering if the Holy Spirit is hovering over this congregation, over this community, in eager anticipation, not just waiting on the word, but now we have another element, waiting on us to be purified from sin. Waiting on us to allow the Lamb of God to take away our sin. And you know how easy it is? Let him take it. Let him take it. 
It doesn't say the Lamb of God that helps get sin out of the life. The Lamb of God that works on your sins. It's so interesting that the Bible uses this verb, to take. It's almost like the Lamb is breaking in and robbing. I'm going to come take away your sin. And I don't know about you, but there are sins in my life that I wish Jesus would break in and take them. Kick down the door of the soul. Beat down, turn off the TV, shut down the internet, get up in my iPod, get in my car, get in the radio station, get in my mind and my private thoughts when no one is looking or listening and take away my sin. Because the same hand that's taking away the sin, in the other hand, he's like, I'm bringing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So why then, if the Holy Spirit is what brings power, life-giving spirit, and he's shaking an eager anticipation of the word, and the word is preached so that as it is manifested in the flesh and in the page to remove sin from the soul. This is now what he's waiting on. In this room, we have enough souls with the baptism of the Holy Spirit to turn the city upside down. In this room, Jesus had gone down to 11 disciples. And you're telling me they baptized more people with 11, with a brother who came in later on, than with 12 who were there from the beginning. And he had more than 120 before Pentecost. But by that time, John 6, then the crucifixion, then three days in the grave, they were gone. By this time, only 120. Three and a half years of ministry. And Christ said, 3,000 in a day. If you give me men, if you give me women who allow me to take away their sins, depend wholly on the Lamb of God for their sins to be taken away and make room for my Holy Spirit to come in, this is what you get. And so where was the Spirit at the cross? In eager anticipation. Because tomorrow, when we, when we pull this thing all together, <laughs> you and I will see in preparation for the coming of the Lord the Holy Spirit <laughs> is a spirit of anticipation this brother is always restricted able to do more than what he's allowed you ever felt that way in church before able to do more than what you're allowed here's the Holy Spirit in heaven able to do more than what we allow. Jesus is able to take away more than what we allow. So tonight, God, Jesus, he wants to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. He desires it. It's why he died. It's why he died. 
God didn't just die so our sins can be gone. All right, you're forgiven now. Everything's good. No, we know better than that. We know better than that. We know that Jesus didn't just die so my sins can be gone only for me to continue in sin. We know Jesus didn't just die so that I can get my sins removed, no longer continue in sin, but I'm still sinful. This is not just why he died. He saw more coming out of his death. So as a result tonight, Christ is trying to show us through the Lamb of God that the Holy Spirit is shaking in eager anticipation when you and I are on that very moment where we're about to let Jesus take away our sin. In that moment, brothers and sisters, where this thing that has held us for so long and the Holy Spirit's like, I can sense it. He's about to let it go. He's about to let it go. She's about to give it up. She's about to let Jesus take it. She's about to depend fully on the merits of Christ. He's shaking. He can't handle it because he's like, do you know what I'm about to do to your life? If you just let this go. If you just let Jesus take it. This is what the Holy Spirit can do. And my fear is that too many of us will be what ifs Christians. Only if they had let this go, this is what I would have done through your life. Can you imagine that in heaven? We might make it, but we might be even more pained by what God could have done through us if we had let the lamb take it all away. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. I want to make an invitation tonight because when Jesus is being presented as the Lamb who is fully able to take away your sins and my sins, the invitation must be made not to give, not to bring, but to let Jesus take it. So I want to make an invitation tonight. Is there someone that says, Lord, I need you to take this thing away from me. I need you to take it away from me. I can't even give it. I need you to take it. I want to invite you to stand to your feet. I can't even give it. I want you to take it. I can't even give this thing. I want you to take it from me, Lord. And as you stand to your feet, I want to ask you to pray this prayer every day until Jesus takes it away. Until he takes it away. But I have a second invitation I need to make. And this is a serious one. There is someone in this room, perhaps, maybe, maybe not, 
who knows that they need Jesus to take it away. But if we're honest in our hearts, we don't want to give it up. We know in this room we're already planning how we're going to do this sin again when we leave here. And as a result, we need special prayer and help. We need prayer to be made willing to let this thing go. If you are that person, I just want you to slip out and come up front because I want to have special prayer for you. This between you and Jesus. Nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing to be ashamed of. But this is so hard for us because many of us are not even willing. But tonight you're saying, Lord, I just, I just want you to make me willing to give this thing up. Just come up front. There's no shame in coming to Jesus. Because when we get to heaven, <laughs> you will for sure not have any shame. I don't know if there's someone else that wants to come and say, Lord, I need you to make me willing to give this thing up because I'm not willing. Come. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. This is not for people to be looking around. Who's coming? Who's not? If you're not coming, you should be praying because this is serious business. People burn in hell for sin. People are lost because of sin. And the church is powerless because of sin. Spiritless because of sin. So if there's anyone else, I urge you, I plead with you. If you know you're not willing to give this thing up, come and get special prayer. Because the Holy Spirit will help us. He will help us. And we just say, Lord, make me willing. Make me willing to give this thing up. Because in my heart, I know I'm not willing to let it go. Heavenly Father, we are, we are troubled, Lord. Troubled because the Holy Spirit in creation, he was just waiting on the word. But when it came to salvation, the word said, it is finished. He had finished his part. But now upon us this night, we have stood simply to say, Lord, we have something for you to take away from us. Sin needs to be dealt with. So that the spirit can come in, fill us and use us powerfully in this community. But even greater than this, Lord, there are many of us who are not willing to let it go. We're not willing to let Jesus take it away. And it's not because we haven't felt the guilt. It's not because we haven't felt the shame. But Lord, for whatever reason, this thing is almost bounded to our very being. Somehow we've come to love that which breaks the heart of God. And Father, we are pleading with you this night that for these who have come up front in special prayer, 
we are praying for an extra outpouring of power upon their life. That when they look at how many times they failed and they say with Mary, how can this be? That, Lord, they will hear your voice saying, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. And, Lord, that you will deliver them, that you will take away this sin. Father, as we bring this meeting to a close, we pray that we would make the Spirit wait no longer in anticipation, but that you may deal with sin in every heart and in every home so that we may be used by God in this community just like the disciples on Pentecost, to preach a message of power, of revival, and of salvation. Thank you, Lord, for hearing this prayer as we offer it up from our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.